All right, we've taken a break from the detective, but that doesn't mean crime has left the shadowed streets. The impending arrival of Noir City 2022 at the Music Box Theater here in Chicago has inspired us to dig deep and watch nearly all 21 titles to be featured in the festival and give you the highlights, lowlights, and everything in between. We have a lot of movies to get through, so we're not going to waste time. Let's get into it. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. Just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert. I'd like to say that if you're seeing me, you're having the worst day of your life. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. I haven't lived a good life. I've been bad. Worse than you could know. I'd hate to take a bite out of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. It was his story against mine, but of course I told my story better. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Tristan Johnson, joined by my friend, Fred Pelzer. And tonight, we're giving a preview of Noir City, Chicago 2022. This is the 12th go-round with the Chicago edition of Noir City. The 21 films will be presented by Eddie Muller. Film Noir Foundation founder and host of TCM's Noir Alley, and Foundation board member Alan K. Rode, author of Michael Curtiz's A Life in Film. The festival runs from August 26th to September 1st and features quite a few movies. We split up the full list and we'll be doing speed round reviews of each entry. Don't worry, no spoilers in these, just a brief capsule review, and at the end, we'll wrap up with our recommendations and uh, chat about the overall festival. But first, I thought it'd be good for a quick, quick chat about our beloved Music Box Theater. Back when Tristan lived in the city, it was a frequent destination for us. He's left, and I've made a slow recovery to, to go back into the theaters post-COVID, but uh, definitely the Music Box continues to be a, a jewel. I remember so fondly my first visit to the Music Box. It was before I even lived in Chicago uh, in 2010. I was Visiting the city with some friends, I decided to break away from the group and wander up on my own to the music box, and I watched Antichrist. And uh, I, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, both the venue and the experience and staggering out of the theater, un, <laughs> unsure to my, to my still developing cinephile brain what exactly I had taken in. Yeah, and for those who are not familiar, the Music Box is this beautiful old movie house. Uh, it has one large screen that seats about 400, and it's it's the, still the original balcony, and and then there's also a smaller theater that, that seats like 30 to 40, I think, and, and then they also have a, a bar and lounge area, plus a garden in the back where you can have drinks outdoors or on certain nights, they actually show movies back there. So if you're in Chicago or in the area or you're visiting, do yourself a treat, show one up, of, see what's one showing. Of the great movie theaters in the country. No Truly. doubt about it. And they also have a releasing arm now for the last several years and, and have put out some great movies. Ida was one of their U.S. Uh, distributions. Uh, so just we we've we stand the music box theater and uh if if again if you're ever in the area definitely check it out but we could wax more episodic about the music box all day we have 21 movies to talk about well 20 there's one title that we could not track down so uh for that one you will be taking your life into your own hands but for the other 20 we we have uh we have thoughts 
Yes, we do. Uh, do you want to kick it off, Fred? Absolutely. All right. To start things off, we have 1981's Thief, written directed by Michael Mann and starring the late, great James Caan, along with Tuesday Weld. Uh, it follows a the titular thief, played by James Caan, who's based in Chicago and is sort of the uh, original Michael Mann protagonist. He is um, a warrior poet purely dedicated to his art form and his art form, his art form happens to be cracking safes and he gets brought in by a, a big time gangster. And at first that makes things easier. And then it makes things harder that he is now under the thumb of another man and no longer his, his own man operating under his own rules. And it really is just sort of a, if you, if you love Michael Mann and haven't seen it, it is, I, I think the, the urtext, it is his original, uh, Bible, his original foundational way of approaching character and movie and, you know, drew on real people and, and the expertise of, of actual criminals and cops to put the story together. And so it is of course, deeply authentic and deeply interested in process and how these things are done and the step-by-step method that, 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 uh, this this thief goes on, but then at the same time, it's also wonderfully romantic and has a beautiful uh, score by his frequent collaborators. Um, blanking on this band's name, Tangerine Dream, uh, and uh, it's it's just it itself is a dream of a movie. Highly recommend. Also deeply influential on uh, Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive. There's there's definitely a, a straight through line between those two movies. So if you if you enjoyed the drive starring Ryan Gosling, definitely come back and, and check out Thief James Conn. And, and we're gonna keep the James Conn theme going. That is part of what uh, Music Box is is going for with these first two titles. Uh, Flesh and Bone is the the next one on our list. Uh, Nineteen ninety three. Uh, directed by by Steve Cloves, who only did one other movie, The Fabulous Baker Boys. Uh, and, uh, and in this case, uh, we've got a kind of noir Western hybrid or a noir modern Western. Uh, and it, um, I think it pretty successfully walks that line. Uh, James Caan, we open up with, uh, with James Caan as a serial killer. Uh, he is murdering a family in a, in a remote house. Um, and and after this, we're gonna we're gonna jump uh, quite a few years later, and his adult son now, uh, played by Dennis Quaid, uh, is who we follow through the movie, and he's gonna strike up a romance with Meg Ryan, uh, and they have quite a bit of chemistry. And the first half of this movie is um, it is uh, you know has some menace lurking at the corners, perhaps, but is generally about kind of developing their chemistry and his. Uh, and and really centering his character and how this son of a of a serial killer has has grown up, and um and then and then his father reenters the picture and things take a bit of a, a turn in the the second half of the film and I won't spoil the direction it all goes but I do think that if you're if you're looking for something in the No Country for Old Men or Lone Star kind of mold this is very much uh earlier than both of those titles but this is very much in that same kind of vein um and uh and and i would not hesitate to call it uh something in the noir tradition still it manages to 
to ground it really effectively there. It's uh, James Conn is terrifying. Um, he it, he it just fits the the serial killer mold extremely well. Uh, the score here is wonderful, and it's got a really wonderful supporting performance from Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, probably my favorite uh, performance of hers, except for uh, Margot Tenenbaum. So uh, all all things to recommend. Nice. It also kind of I I've not seen, but it, it, based on your description, it also kind of reminds me of Frailty. Did you ever see that? I did not. No. Uh, that's with uh, Bill Paxton as a serial killer driven by God. And oh. uh, in that movie, uh, a very young Matthew McConaughey plays his uh, oh. now grown son and is also sort of grappling with the legacy of having a serial killer for a father. But that's much more of like a, a horror movie than a, a noir. Yeah, this is uh, definitely a good Father's Day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, that was, the, yeah, they, they started off the festival this year with a two-part ode to, to James Caan. So those two neo-noir titles are are at the start. But everything after that is firmly 1958 and earlier and much more traditional noir fare. So next up, we have Among the Living, 1941, directed by Stuart Heisler and starring Albert Decker and Susan Hayward. And uh, Stuart Heisler had a a long career, not not a lot of big titles, but a lot of definitely a lot of uh, noir titles that we'll eventually get to. Uh, this is sort of a noir gothic hybrid. There's a bit of I don't know Jane Eyre in here, maybe or but pulpy Jane Eyre, I guess. It's uh, the the premise at the start is that uh, this young man comes home for his his father's funeral and to take over the family business and discovers that his twin brother had not died but was in fact secretly kept in the basement of his family's abandoned estate and. Shortly after learning this fact, the brother escapes and starts wreaking havoc in town and becomes a serial killer on the run. And things go from there. So, uh, you know, clearly a a very pulpy concept. Like I said, it definitely borders on that horror gothic noir area, especially again, 1941. So it's a very early noir release. But it is pretty thrilling. The The cast is really game. Decker does a great job playing both brothers. And, you know, I really wasn't sure how it was going to play out the end. So I also give it credit for, for keeping me in suspense, despite being 80 years old. So uh, among the living. All right. Next up, we've got Street of Chance from 1942. Uh, and that's directed by Jack Hively. Uh, this is uh, at 67 minutes and night, uh, or sorry, 70 minutes and nice and and breezy entry, uh, but it's got a really good hook to it. We have a, a man, Frank Thompson, who gets involved in a construction accident while walking down the street uh, and develops an instant case of amnesia right from when we meet him, and he begins to piece his life back together. Uh, and, uh, and, and after a little while, um, he gets roped in by a, by a woman, a, a servant of of a wealthy family whose son has just been murdered and it becomes apparent that that uh there may be more to his past than we than we've realized as as one would suspect pretty much right away it's got this great little hitchcockian setup to it it's nice and tight uh and and it stars burgess meredith um so there's also a, a part probably just the burgess meredith angle to it but uh, you know recalls twilight zone a little bit 
um, in, in this kind of premise also. Uh, and, um, and Claire Trevor, who, um, who Lamar fans will know from Key Largo, from Murder My Sweet, uh, and, and she, has, uh, she plays the servant of this wealthy family. Uh, it is, um, it's, it's quite good for what it is, but it also is, is not up to Hitchcock's best. Uh, for, so I think maybe comparing it that, that way is a, a bit of a disservice. It's not stylized, it's not super tight, and as the plot does begin to kick in, it becomes really apparent where it's going. Um, that said, it's fun. The performances are really strong from from Meredith and from Trevor. And uh, and I, I, you know, at seventy minutes, I think it's a a good, enjoyable ride that is that comes in on the early side of the noir era, but I think uh, is nicely setting up what comes after it. You can see a little bit of the strains of the. Uh, with this big manor house that he uh, he falls into uh, the the kind of gothic elements that something like Rebecca has, but um, but I think you're it's still slowly pushing away from that and into the more familiar noir territory. Nice. All right, next, Doctor Broadway from 1942. This is also a tight 68 minutes. About half the movies on this list are under 80 minutes, which is also great, especially when you're watching all 21 of them. Uh, or when the which the music box is doing, I think a lot of these shorter ones they are doing back to back to back. They've got a Saturday B movie marathon, so a lot of these titles are actually being played in one day. So, but it's not that not that intimidating when they're all, you know, hour fifteen. But uh, Doctor Broadway, most noticeable probably for being the directorial premiere of Anthony Mann, uh, a name that we will return to with a lot of very good noirs and also some very good westerns that we won't cover. I know it's westerns mostly. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, this one, uh, not remembered for a reason. It's a. Uh, it feels sort of like a. I mean, it's competently directed, but it, there's not a lot of uh, flash or sizzle here, and it's. Um, it sort of felt like a TV pilot for me. the The premise is there's this New York doctor who was raised by crooks, but made it good, and he works on Broadway, and he knows people he knows cops he knows lawyers he knows judges he knows criminals everybody trusts him and he's uh, and he's a, a psychiatrist and he um gets drawn into this like murder investigation and because he he offers to uh deliver the money from a a, a criminal to his lost daughter and he promises he'll track her down and then the criminal gets murdered and so uh, we're not doing spoilers so don't go any further into it but it definitely keeps things light and breezy uh heads up it has some rough gender politics uh lots of there's like one of the early scenes is just him knocking a woman unconscious multiple times as a gag like uh he's just like oh great <laughs> I'm just going to punch her out so oh. that I can resolve the situation <laughs> without her nattering at me. Like literally two scenes in, in the first 15 minutes. So, uh, you know, you're getting into that, but, um, that aside, again, it just felt like a, like a TV pilot. It's, it's just so light and breezy and, and none of the problems ever feel that threatening. And, but also the setup feels like you could do an episode a week of him encountering different issues and solve and using his psychiatry and, connections to resolve whatever comes his way so perfectly okay programmer all right well um i suppose that that 
that's the about the best I could say for this next one. Smooth as silk uh, is probably my least favorite, uh, or at least least interesting, uh, least interesting of the ones that I watched. Despite the fact that it's got a, a solid premise, it's an up and coming actress who ditches her lawyer fiance for a producer, only for the producer to end up murdered, um, which um, which is a, a good solid basis for a showbiz noir. And I wanted so much more out of that and the film is on on a track uh in, in all of the 64 minutes it's running for the film's on track to be exploring that but then it just devolves in the last act into something much more rote and uh and, and it and it really does a disservice to virginia gray who um who plays the the actress paula marlowe is her name uh and and she's quite good in the throughout the film, but it, the film becomes less and less interested with her. It seems as it moves toward its conclusion, and it really runs out of a lot of steam for me. So, despite a strong setup, it just this one didn't work out so well for me. Mm. Uh, all right, next up, so dark the night. Directed by Joseph H. Lewis, uh, more famously known for directing Gun Crazy and The Big Combo, two striking noirs. Uh, this is, uh, I think, a bit earlier than those movies. Uh, yeah, Gun Crazy was 50. So yeah, this is a few years prior to that. Uh, not not as stylistic as those two later films would be and that, that really kind of leaned into the cinematography and, and expressiveness of, of the noir mode. Um, and it's about a renowned Paris detective who decides to take a little vacation out in the countryside. He starts to fall for the innkeeper's daughter, uh, who's already, um, engaged to, to somebody else. And then they, both the, uh, the, the, the daughter and, and her fiance disappear. And so the, uh, detective uh, it's like, and of course, everybody knows who this detective is. They're like, you're the man. So now he sets out to try and figure out who did it. Um, it is, I haven't just like figure out the exact chain of title here, but this is a, if you're familiar with detective stories, and especially detective stories like end of the 19th or start of the, or start of the 20th century, you're going to very quickly figure out what what happened here um it's a it's a plot that has been used that is that is very from very early in the genre and has been used a few times um so if you're paying attention you'll you'll put it together quickly um and i think that is sort of the the main selling point of this particular entry is is its mystery and what what is happening here um but yeah it's uh if if you've ever watched the columbia noir um collections on criterion uh is frequently featured there uh which is when where i had previously seen it uh well next up we've got the argyle secrets from 1948 and it's directed by cy enfield who would later go on in the 60s to direct zulu which is uh quite a bit different from from classic noir he uh, he had uh relocated to the uk by that point uh but Argyle Secrets is, um, this is a, a fun B-movie noir. It was shot in just eight days. Um, and, and I think that you get some of that, um, 
that uh, real pulpy quality coming through on, on the low budget noirs like this or something like Detour, uh, where, uh, where you, you know, a lot of the other um, ones that we're watching in the 40s are either coming earlier on the, uh, on the, the end of noir and they're more of a programmer um, or they're, they're gaining prestige and they're, and they're going bigger and bolder. But, uh, but looking at something like Argyle Secrets, this is just a, a quick and dirty noir with some really fun stylistic flourishes. It's lurid, it's, um, it's a little schlocky, and that is okay because that's what you're here for. Uh, there's a reporter who was murdered, his assistant is framed, and then is pursued by an international cable of criminals on the hunt for the mysterious Argyle album, which outs a bunch of Nazi sympathizers and war profiteers. Um, it is chock full of, of grotesque caricatures and stylistic flourishes. And, uh, and honestly, that's all I really wanted. It's 64 minutes long. It's quick, in and out, dirty, um, and uh, a good time. Yeah, of the titles on your side of the list that I did not get a chance to watch, I think this is the one that uh, I was most interested in catching. And I'm glad to hear that it, it lived up to the potential buzz. All right. Next up, we actually have a, a double header here. Uh, so first up is Flesh and Fantasy, which was originally intended to be a four-part anthology film, uh, one section of which ended up being excised and turned into the other part of the double header, Destiny, which Tristan will be covering. But the remaining three, Saved in Flesh and Fantasy, plus the wraparound tale. And, you know, I mean, it's essentially like an early Twilight Zone, very O. Henry, very, you know careful what you wish for, or, uh, I mean, that's, that's mostly the mode that it's in is careful what you wish for. And in a series of characters in, in countering supernatural and generally situations that are in some way uh, foretelling things. And so this then leads them to, to disarray and, and tragedy sometimes, sometimes not. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so just the, the three stories are, uh, one set at Mardi Gras in New Orleans and revolves around a young woman who feels that she is too uh, too ugly to ever be attractive to to a man and, and is thinking about killing herself. And then she, as one does, finds her way into a curiosity shop where the mysterious shopkeeper promises her something that could maybe turn things around during Mardi Gras. Uh, the second involves a psychic uh, played by... Um, uh, played by Thomas Mitchell, probably most famous from It's a Wonderful Life as, uh, uh, oh my God, what's his name? But I'm blanking on the, the lead of It's a Wonderful Life. Jimmy uh, Stewart? Stewart. Jim, yeah, Jim, James Stewart. Uh, Thomas Mitchell, probably most famous for It's a Wonderful Life, where he played James Stewart's uncle, the forgetful uncle. Um, also, and, great, uh, only angels have wings. Stagecoach, yeah. yeah. Stagecoach, and, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's been in a lot. I feel like at Still this back. point, it's a Wonderful Life is what he's most known for. But yeah, I mean, Gone with the Wind, High Noon, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Only Angels yeah, at Wings. Oh yeah, he he was in like three of the the, the best pictures of of 1939, right? That's uh, that quite the feat. Uh, yeah, so he's uh, he is the psychic and, he, and Edward G. Robinson is a uh, lawyer who meets with him and the psychic predicts that he's going to commit a murder. And so he becomes obsessed with this prediction. And then the the third film is about a man who dreams that he is going to die. He's a tightrope walker, and he dream he has a dream that he's going to fall off the tightrope walker and die, tightrope and die. 
but he's going to do it in front of the woman he loves who will be watching from the stands and this woman's a, a stranger to him in his dream and then he shortly thereafter meets her and becomes again obsessed with what does this mean for my future um but it's also uh the the woman in the third part is uh that he meets is barbara stanwick uh so it's really uh, a stacked cast throughout and that's a lot, a lot of what helps to make make this fun also it's shot by uh, uh julian de vivier uh, most famous for Pepe Lemoco and Panique, uh, both of which we'll be covering at some point, uh, assuming we get far enough into our, our different topics for different seasons. So uh, the expressiveness of, of his filming here, especially for the supernatural elements, is worth worth watching. Um, but as we said, there was a fourth sequence that got excised and turned into Destiny. And, oh my, um, it... It, I, I I am I'm fascinated to hear about what it, what this could have been if it remained part of that anthology. Uh, but uh, Duvivier, uh, who I, I love from Pepe Laboco, um, I, which is certainly one of my favorites of the '30s, I I really should check out Flesh and Fantasy and see how how uh, all of his vision comes together there. Because at the core, there is a really great. Uh, juxtaposition in destiny of a of a bank robber who is on the run splits from his partner ends up um ultimately on in this idyllic pastoral setting where he settles in with a farmer and his and his blind daughter who is this magical snow white type uh character who attracts birds and and has some telepathic qualities and is uh, uh, it is it's strange and fanciful and the cinematography is is gorgeous kind of alternating between the darker tones earlier and then this this lush pastoral environment um, that she exists in and of course this um, the this con man arrives in this uh, this community and uh, and is trying to run another grift as soon as he's there and despite all of that, despite what the, the bones of which should be a really interesting short segment, the studio saw fit to impose on this a framing device, uh, which takes him further into the future, telling his story and totally exonerates him of this, uh, this character who is uh, routinely very, very creepy to this blind girl um, and making all sorts of unwanted advances to her and and the uh, it's it's such a mess uh, and it's shot so differently that you can you can tell which parts Hollywood just decided oh no we need to pad this out we need to make it more palatable for audiences and uh, it just drags the, the full thing down but it is a fascinating mess yeah, so apparently it was the first section of the original four-part Flesh and Fantasy, and it tested so well that that the producers were like, "No, we gotta. This could be its own movie. We just have to, like I said, we just gotta pat it out a little bit." And uh, but they didn't get. I think DVD was either about to do something else or just refused, and so they brought in somebody else. And uh, yeah, you know, it's almost like directors have different visions, and you can't just mix and match. I mean, there's been a few titles that have successfully done that, but most cases. Uh, not, not going to work out for you. And the the fantasy elements that are that are there in Destiny, like it, to me, that's something uh, you don't see a whole lot from the nineteen forties. And so I really I'm really fascinated by it when it does come up. Something like um, 
like Beauty and the Beast, uh, almost that kind of uh, that that kind of practical effect mm -hmm. that's happening right in the frame. And uh, and there's something that is really magical about that to me, and it, it plays really well. But maybe it's just because you don't see a whole lot of it. And sure, I mean, I will say for Flesh and Fantasy, at least nothing nothing there reaches the heights of Beauty and the Beast. I, I don't know if this is quite there, but it's at least it's at least in that same kind of realm. Well, um, and that would explain why they were like, "This is the segment that we can spin off into something else." If if the, if it had the most powerful, you know, visual elements to it. But then they didn't bring the guy who did the visuals in to do the whole no movie, idea. so you know, whatever. Uh, all right, next up, uh, "Night Has a Thousand Eyes," fantastic title. Uh, it was directed by John Farrow. Uh, we revisiting also a few times well, the big clock his kind of woman where danger lives uh, alias nick beale uh all all pretty solid noir titles there so uh, the night has a thousand eyes is about a uh open super strong about this heiress who's about to try and kill herself and her fiance stops her and admits that a psychic had told him where to find her but also seems to think that the psychic is pulling some kind of con uh, and then we find out that the psychic is edward g robinson back again but this time instead of uh getting his fortune told is selling other people's fortunes and he shares a story about how he is uh connected and to to the, what's happening and and claims to have real psychic powers and then the movie kind of goes back and forth and the movie does a very good job of of going back and forth as to whether he really does have powers or whether it's a con and keeps you guessing which, which way it's going to go. Um, you know, Edward G. Robinson is, is always great. And this is like a, just a big old showcase for him. So that uh, is, is a good recommendation in of itself. And it definitely leans into the fatalistic side of noir and that, you know, starting from this opening flashback and, and, narration from robinson and and through a lot of the other themes that it's dealing with of like can you tell the future can you escape your fate that kind of stuff so if that streak of noir interests you and you're you're into something that potentially has a little bit more supernatural angle this was also worth worth the watch and again great great title it's, it starts again very like this for me the strongest part was the opening and it's very evocative and especially this feeling of she's talking about how like the stars are overhead or watching her and it's like the night has a thousand eyes and it feels almost like Lovecraftian in that moment, which is always yeah. a good way to tickle my fans. So that's night has a thousand eyes. All right. Uh, this next one, pay attention. Uh, Cause uh, this is one you do not want to miss. Sorry, wrong number. Uh, this is um, directed from 1948, directed by Anatoly Litvak. Um, who in the same year, uh, in 1948, had um, had another great movie, The Snake Pit, uh, with Olivia de Havilland. Uh, um, in the case of that, Snake Pit was nominated for Best Picture. This wasn't. I think this is even stronger. Uh, a bedridden Barbara Stanwyck is on the phone, and she overhears two men who are conspiring to murder uh, over a, a shaky connection. This becomes the framing device, and she begins to look back on her past, uh, especially her marriage to Burt Lancaster in one of his earlier appearances. Uh, so uh, this is, um, first off, this is just shot extremely well. Um, there's a level of polish here that is that it puts it among the kind of top tier of noir. Uh, it's, it's shot with confidence. Um, there's great play of, of the city, of, um, of 
interior and exterior set pieces and more than anything it understands the value of Barbara Stanwyck and her face and her ability to have a total complete meltdown. Uh, she is she gives a very strong unnerving performance here uh, and makes a good case for herself as one of the best uh, the the best of all uh, of all classic Hollywood actresses. She she's really terrific. Burt Lancaster reliable as always. Um, this is not his show. He um, he is there. He is he is uh, reliable support here. Um, I don't want to get into the plot too much because it's really fun to watch it unfold. And this has got one of the great noir endings. I had not seen this before I, I watched it, but absolutely loved it and can't really recommend it enough. Make time for this one. I was in a stage production of this when I was in high school. Ah, how was that? Uh, it was fun. Uh, you know, I mean, I think it was like a, it was a one act. Um, so it moved pretty fast. I think it, it cut back a lot of what's in so, the movie. Uh, so you've seen this before, I think. I actually have not seen the movie. Oh. Uh, huh. But uh, but no, I'm, from what I remember of the stage play that was, I, again, I did this more than 15 years ago. So, uh, but from what I remember, it was a lot of fun. So I'm sure the, the movie is a, a good time too. Uh, I think I was the police detective. I was frequently typecast as that. <laughs> All right. Uh, next up, we're on the back half here. We're, we're closing in on the end. Next up, we have Southside 1-1000, uh, which follows a U.S. Secret Service agent who goes undercover with a counterfeiting ring. And this is part of a, a larger trend of, for some reason, there was like three or four procedurals about U.S. Secret Service treasury men going undercover. T-Men is another one. Uh, there's one or two others I can't think of right now. But yeah, there's this like big push of... And it, I mean, it, it is functionally um, copaganda, right? Like this is very clearly funded and in work done in uh, alignment with and, and with the support of the Treasury Department. It makes them look like badasses who are out there uh, and it's the story itself is like is a very straightforward procedural, but the other, the other fascinating thing to me is how it opens. It it kind of like opens with a documentary esque assemblage of of um, both dramatized footage and actual archival footage, and it's narrated and it's drawing this series of connections between like the Korean War and the U.S. defense of freedom, but also capitalism versus communism. And that, but that is also a war being fought at home by the Treasury Department who are protecting the U.S. dollar. And like at one point, it unironically calls money the best weapon in its war, in this war. Like it is saying the quiet part loud about like the way capitalism actually works so for for this democratic socialist uh it it was kind of like oh okay i I mean at least we're all playing you know being very straightforward about what we're doing here um so uh so yeah but no it's like you know it's again a very straightforward procedural kind of proto dragnet type of uh type of entry here 
Oh, that's right. The next one's me oh, yeah. too. We're we're at the point where where you have watched uh, more than I have. Yeah, a little bit more bandwidth. Uh, so I I I was double dipping to to help fill in some of the, the gaps here. Uh, so next up is the sniper. Uh, this uh, this is from 1952. It's directed by Edward Dimitrik, whom we've already covered with um, yeah. Murder My Sweet, and he also directed Crossfire. And uh, so, like, that's two great uh, noirs right there. He had another noir with Dick Powell called Cornered. Um, so he again brings a really strong visual sense to like half of this movie, and this is another one that's sort of like partially a procedural so it follows a uh u.s war vet who at the start of the movie already has gotten possession of a sniper rifle and has started hunting women and uh and the movie itself opens with a title card that's like you are about to watch a dramatization of something that happens every day sexual assault or something like that uh, or sexual violence and it is very clearly a again a piece of uh media with with a message on his mind in this case about like the various factors that contribute to misogyny and uh and violence against women and and names unfortunately a lot of factors that are still present today including the uh lack of social services support the uh casual misogyny between men who aren't violent to women that sort of sets the groundwork for this kind of attitude to to infest the easy access to powerful weapons that we have in this country and again this movie was released in 1952 and you're watching like oh they could pretty much just do this again today and very little about it would change Uh, and that is sad uh, but again, it's 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 divided in half, and um, as a result, it kind of feels like an episode of Criminal Minds. Um, and the half where we're following this budding serial killer is incredibly striking and suspenseful. And Dimitrik really like gets to cut loose and and do some fun visual stuff. And then the other half is following the detectives trying to catch him, and it's much more serious and much more of the part where they're like. Well, if only we had better mental institutions to identify these people and give them the help that they needed before it got to this point. But all that costs money and and like people in town in city hall talking about this this stuff. Uh and just the like the shoe leather that the detectives are doing to track them down. So uh but the the other half is 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 very engaging, just uh, you know, again, had uh, being very upfront that it is a movie about a just a man going around killing women which also is unfortunately a very common topic in both film and in real life. (laughs) You are up again. I'm up again. So next up, we've got the face behind the mask. This was probably the cheapest movie that I watched for this, uh, the sequence. Uh, It is contend with, uh, with Argyle secrets is probably, I mean, this is like, it felt just a few steps above, Ed Wood, like where it's competent, oh it, it is competent, but it is cutting so many corners that it is directly impacting the plot. Or either that, or they kind of figure out a way around it on the on the story side. But um, the the highlight of it is Peter Lorre as the star. Uh, he is a, an immigrant from Hungary who uh, arrives and is having is starting to like get some breaks, but then uh, another tenant in his uh, low rent hotel 
leaves a hot plate on and it sets catches fire and burns his face and he's um no no reputable reputable quote unquote place of work will will hire him because of his face and so he turns to a life of crime and soon proves himself a criminal mastermind or so we're told because every single heist and crime takes place off screen and it's just them being like all right we're gonna go do this thing cut to we did the thing um there's a like the final 10 minutes is pretty pretty great like there's some cool stuff that they do and clearly this the third act is where they saved the money for um but other than that it um it's it's just really struggling against the the limited resources at its disposal uh well uh contrast that against uh all the king's men which is probably the highest profile entry that we have on on the slate here uh so much so that it won best picture uh which which marks it as one of the few only noirs to uh to achieve such a thing uh it in 1949 uh it's on the longer side 110 minutes uh certainly compared to the other entries on on the list here um directed by robert rawson uh, also known for the hustler later on in the in early 60s um and uh and so this is very much a, a a more prestigious noir and it and and the scope matches that it's it's the portrait of a politician he's played by broderick crawford um and he's, he's quite good in the role um, and his rise and fall from overcoming the the odds to weathering scandals to his ultimate decline. Uh, and uh, this, to me, I was I, I was kind of shocked to see on this list just because in my head, I don't think about this being a noir. I, I and I don't know why it certainly got some of the trappings of one, but it's also got so much more scope to it uh it feels more like something that took lessons from citizen kane in that regard where like this is a portrait of a, a life of a man and 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 certainly you know he's he's a man who rises to the top but um it it just bears such little in common with most of the other noirs that we've been engaging with uh whether in this uh in this festival or just in general over the course of the podcast uh but there's there's certainly there's crime and there's uh and and uh and, and he is um he is someone who is not afraid to to make difficult decisions and will cut corners where he can and ultimately gets uh you get the sense that things are going to come full circle for him um in the end and and so i see i i see why it is labeled as a noir in some regards but it just feels so remarkably different from a lot of the other ones that we are uh, that we've looked at so far and that i've seen in general from the noir world um it's it as as far as things go it's i think it's a solid film and it's well made and and broderick crawford's quite good in the lead role but ultimately for me this is the like if you enjoy the king's speech kind of thing this is mm. the kind of best picture nominee for you it's fairly safe um it there's nothing there's nothing incompetent about it by any means but uh but it's it's not one that i get extremely excited about mm -hmm. 
Well, next up, we have another Broderick Crawford uh, entry here. We've got Scandal Sheet from 1952. Uh, and conversely to that, this is a lean, mean little pot boiler. Uh, and it's, it's built on delicious iron, kind of delicious irony that, that the Coen brothers would get off for much, for much of their career. And it's about a, a newspaper editor who's a little liked by anybody because he leans into the scandal and turning his, his the paper into a tabloid. But that's what sells, damn it. And then he winds up in a situation where he kills, accidentally kills his wife who's turned up and is trying to shake him down. Tries to cover it up, but then his lead reporter, who's the one who digs up all this dirt, starts to get on it. And the more he reports on it, wouldn't you know it, the more papers sell. And the more papers sell, the closer he gets to having a bonus. But the more that he reports on it, the closer they get to him. And so it's just a delicious little cat and mouse where okay. he's trying to cover up the tracks as, as quick as he can. But every time, he, you know, every decision just leads to more bad, bad consequences. And it's just a classic of of the genre in that sense. It's a lot of fun, really leans into that irony. Um, Roger Crawford is great in it. Uh, also great is Donna Reed, best known, again, for It's a Wonderful Life. Um, she's the, the, the lead, uh, female lead in there. Uh, also, um, John Derrick plays the reporter, and he mostly had a Western career, but he is really great in this. He's he's a lot of fun, and it's directed by uh, Phil Carlson, who had a fascinating career, a lot of great, as as uh, I think Wikipedia puts it, no nonsense uh, noirs. Uh, Kansas City Confidential is his, which Tarantino cited as an inspiration for Reservoir Dogs. Um, he did also Five Against the House, which Tristan and I have just been talking about, a, a heist movie. Um, but also he did stuff like wa the original Walking Tall. He did a couple of the um, Dean Martin spy movies, The Wrecking Crew and uh, The Silencers, I think maybe another one. Uh, he did an Elvis Presley movie. Like he was really kind of did whatever. I mean, one of Another one he did was Ben, the uh, serial killer rat movie from the 70s. So, you know, he, uh, but definitely his noirs, really solid. This one included. Uh, just a great time. Awesome. That's um, great. So let's see. Am I, you're, I, I'm you're, up again. you're taking it away from, uh, you're, yeah. you're up eternally now. The, the rest are all yours. <laughs> uh, all right. So next up we have Detective Story. Uh, directed by William Wyler. So again, uh, this is another stage play turned into fil feature film that we've covered for for Wyler, having previously done The Desperate Hours. And just like that, this is sort of a ticking clock situation, but this time it's set at the police station. And it follows Detective Jim McLeod, played by the always great Kirk Douglas, uh, as he tries to uh, bust an abortionist. So it is very relevant. Um, and Unsurprisingly with Weiler, uh, it brings a very humanist touch to the story and is not the straightforward police procedural that so many others would be. And obviously also drawing on the original source material of the play, which 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 does similar. Um, but it's a you know, it's very solid, great cast. Um, it 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 all takes place within like 12 hours at a single police precinct. Um, and actually speaking of Oscar winning productions uh it was the film debut for 
uh, Lee Grant. It was oh. the film debut for Lee Grant, and uh, she earned she got a uh, Oscar nomination for that. And then, like a year or two later, she was blacklisted. So, uh, which is a shame because she is she is great in it. Um, so yeah, but no, it's like uh, again, just like Desperate Hour, Weiler does a great job of sort of exploiting the space and um, keeping it dynamic and, and breaking it up, but also just really finding the the humanism in the characters. Uh, so that is Detective Story. Uh, and then next after that, we have 7-Eleven Ocean Drive, uh, which was uh, heavily publicized at the time as filmed under police protection because it was based off of the very recent um, testimony about the way the, the wire service for gambling operations worked. Uh, yeah, stripped from the headlines of the 1950 Kvafer organized crime hearings. Um, and it was also shot in location in L.A., the Hoover Dam and Palm Springs. Hoover Dam is probably the most famous part of this movie uh, it, as they um, it's, at, it's in the ending and it is, is thrilling. I won't get into the details, but it's, it's probably if you've heard of it, that's probably the other reason you would have heard of it. But uh, it's just a really engaging rise and fall story for uh, this uh, telephone technician who gets involved with the syndicate and uh starts first takes ends up taking over the the local california racket and then ends up getting involved in the national one and then maybe gets in a little over his head uh so this is edmund o'brien playing the part of mal granger uh and he's great it's a lot of fun um moves super fast and covers a lot of a lot of ground and the the final uh hoover dam sequence is is really engaging and, and all that it is promised to be. I know exactly what you are talking about, and I actually did not know where that came from. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, that question is now answered, and I clearly should put that on my list to catch up on. Yeah, no, definitely worth a watch. I mean, the only thing holding it back is that, uh, again, it has this, I mean, it, it was, uh, as the marketing says, it was filmed under police protection. It didn't really need the police protection, but it was definitely done with the help of the police. And so, again, there's a running like C plot of the detective trying to hunt him down. And it's actually a framing element to it with this detective essentially like recapping the entirety of the story to his, his, uh, the guy driving with him to, to try and catch Edmund O'Brien and just like a real drip, this, this detective. And every time we have to cut back to him, it's just like, Oh God, let's get past this so we can get back to the crime story. That's actually engaging and interesting outside of that that runner with the the cop it is super engaging and let's see so next is the one title that we could not track down for you uh playgirl from 1954 uh you know unfortunately you google playgirl and you get a lot of results that are not what you intended so we we just were not able to track down a copy of this uh so like i said at the start you'll be taking your life into your own hands with this title we make no promises and finally is The Cruel Tower, which is probably the other entry that I saw that that was the cheapest. It kind of reminded me of uh, some of the Mickey Spillane adaptations that we looked at, the the lower funded ones. It, it's, I mean, even more, but even cheaper than that. The uh, premise is great, though. It follows a group of steeplejacks, guys who work up high and do jobs that nobody else would take up on top of telephone towers and water towers and chimneys and that kind of work 
And so naturally there is, uh, and especially for me as somebody who is very afraid of heights, there are some really fun sequences that take place very high up that are deeply uncomfortable for me. But uh, undergirding that, this is sort of barely a noir, more kitchen sink drama about a uh, wanderer who winds up being picked up by this group of steeplejacks and adopted by them, but he ends up in a love triangle between him, the leader, and the leader's girl who travels with them. And she maybe wants out of this life and our our, uh, roustabout maybe is is the way out, but that leader, he's a jealous type. And so it all comes to a head in in the third act, but uh, on on your way there, it's just a lot of like hanging out with these guys and and watching them do their work. So again, like more melodrama than noir, very television movie feeling and sort of limited sets and, um, and and making the most of what it has, but, uh, but there's some good stuff in it too. And it, and it does do some impressive stuff with, with the, budget that it was presumably working under uh and that is directed by lou landers who uh is more known for his horror work i'd say probably the thing he's most known for is the raven uh the uh Lugosi and karloff raven um but he also did like the return of the vampire and the boogeyman will get you and inner sanctum and man in the dark so um yeah he did a lot of like horror movies or these more like sensational crime noir flicks. But uh, I mean, even if the Raven is your most known movie, obviously you, you unfortunately never get the chance to work with a, a larger budget. And that is the 21st title of noir city, 2022 Chicago. We've done it. So looking back, uh, I know I, put this in one order but let's do it in the for other way around i think would be more interesting just first like what are some unifying themes like i'm just kind of curious what you think the programmers were thinking as they put together this selection of movies gosh um well i don't i don't know that there's that it's hard to uh, to have one strand that that pulls everything together um but it does it does feel one it's it runs the the stretch of noir so we get to um, as you're kind of following through here, uh, very much in the order that we did, putting the James Conn entries aside, um, you're you're tracing noir from its early roots at the beginning of the '40s up through um, up through the mid '50s, and uh, as the genre is in its final final stages as we as we knew it, and having been going through a similar experience as we've as we've progressed forward through noir i think it's really interesting to see a bunch of these films and kind of watch them in order and watch how trends of the time are shaping them as you move ahead Uh, because if any if there's any through line it's just what the what the patterns of of cinema in general are are what toll it's taking on on the genre as it evolves as it comes into being and as it fades from view yeah, and I'm sure also playing into this is just sort of resources and and also this is the 12th time they've done it, so they probably don't want to repeat themselves, but, but at the same time you're trying to figure out like, okay, what can we get our, where can we get our hands on a working print or a really strong DCP that we can use to to show? So I'm sure that also sort of limiting the field in, in terms of what they can do. Uh, before they announced the Chicago edition of this, I was looking at some of the other 2022 Noir City 
entries in other cities and unsurprisingly quite a few of these titles popped up on those lists as well so i'm sure they're sort of generally taking a few core titles on the road and then they're sourcing locally or from the theater itself some other entries that they can put into the mix and get a a festival going but that said, I, I do think that there's an interesting, like really strong gothic horror supernatural bent to quite a few of these titles that that runs throughout. Um, I, you know, I did. I think you had more of that in your in the ones that you were watching than than I, I had. So but I do I do see that because um, there there's certainly an element in um, it, obviously in in Destiny, but um, yeah, but I mean, among, among chance, the living. Street of Chance, it sounded like So Dark the Night, I would put in that category. Flesh and Fantasy, Destiny, Night is a Thousand Eyes. Uh, the Face Band, the Mask is, is kind of a bit in that gothic tradition of like um, Lon Chaney and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's sort of an interesting like Venn diagram alignment of genres that, that's, that's at play there. Uh, also, quite a few procedurals, but I think that's just sort of a function of like. There were a lot of them, so it's more likely that some of them would have survived, and and that's that's kind of what they were working with. But again, just like a lot of procedurals, uh, I mean, Doctor Dr. Broadway is kind of his own thing. But um, that that aside, sort of in the in the back half, I would say, you know, you've got um, Southside One One Thousand, The Sniper, uh, Detective Stories, Seven Eleven Ocean Drive. Uh, so that's four titles that are that are all kind of in that mode. I, I like the I like that gothic strand a lot because it does pull it reminds you one um in in some ways of the like German expressionist mm-hmm. as I say it really looks into into noir but also that like right before the noir era kicks off like bo- box office hits are Rebecca are Wuthering Heights are movies that that kind of show that there's an audience for that particular um, particular strain of uh of uh, filmmaking and so seeing that creep in especially earlier on in noir makes a lot of sense yeah and then you know there's just a couple like real uh like real bops in here uh you know uh so let's actually let's just kind of get into it right like what are your top recommendations top two or three titles that you saw hands down the best of the movies that i i watched was sorry wrong number um it it's just a a great noir with a an amazing performance by Barbara Stanwyck, one of one of her best performances I've seen. Uh, the camera loves her; she gets to go nuts. Uh, it's um, it's shot extremely well. Um, if you're looking for a classic noir firing on all cylinders, I I think it really delivers. So um, so I can't recommend that one enough. Um, I uh, even though I can't recommend destiny as a as a film i i do think if you were to make a double billing out of flesh and fantasy and destiny i think that that might be a fun a fun thing to watch um together uh just Mm -hmm. you know take them and see what uh see how they they work together and see how studio meddling ruined what is a really interesting core film at at the, the heart of destiny um and I liked um, I, I liked both Flesh and Bone and um, and the Argyle Secrets quite a bit for what they were. Uh, you know, both I think a cheat. Both set out with very different uh, very different uh, ideas of what they what they were. 
uh, both checked the boxes that they aspired to and uh, I think delivered some solid noir thrills. Nice. Yeah, no, I mean, quite a few of those I'm, I'm definitely going to be checking out. Uh, I'm, on my side of the list, I had three real standouts, quite a few others that are really solid. Uh, you know, overall, it's a great, great selection they put together. You can't go wrong just getting the season pass if you're actually in the city and going to go check these out. But also if you're just sort of looking for some noirs to watch, this is a great starting place for a list to check out. And especially, but again, especially if you're in the city and you get to watch some of these like on 35 millimeter on DCP projected surrounded by other noir fans. Uh, if, if you can make that Saturday, uh, that Saturday marathon, that sounds like it's going to be a great time. But uh, just the three that I would say are don't miss. First off, the Big Mike, I'm a big Michael Mann fan. Uh, I'm a big Con fan. And this is just like peak for both of them. If you're into the criminal with a code, the warrior poet thing that Mann does, it it is like the, the keystone to his careers, I, I feel like. So I highly recommend Thief. Also has a great... Uh, um, has a great heist sequence that um is sort of building on uh Rafiki and so that also alone is is worth worth watching for but then everything else that that man does and brings to it is 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 so good uh and then for the the classic era uh the two that really stood out for me at the sort of the back half of the the run is scandal sheet Again, it just like makes a meal out of this delicious irony that it sets up at the start with this this our central character by played by Roger Crawford is just incentivized to get closer and closer to revealing the crime he did, but also obviously doesn't want to reveal it. And it's him just trying to navigate that and get out. And it, it is just a delicious cat and mouse game. Uh, and, and all the actors in it are great and, and doing great work. So that's absolutely worth watching. And then also 7-Eleven Ocean Drive. Like I said, the the criminal side of the story is so good and moves so fast. And it it just and it's also it reminded me of the uh a movie that we've talked about previously on the on the show. Yeah, because we just talked about the Black Exploitation episode, but uh, a favorite movie of mine, point blank, because it oh, is sort of dealing with this like and I'm a sucker for this, but like organized crime as 1950s corporate structure, like the syndicate from 7-Eleven Ocean Drive feels like a precursor to the organization from point blank. And it's just a bunch of like white men in suits who could be accountants who are also racketeering and ordering hits and that kind of stuff. And that alone is, is catnip for me. Um, I think that's also a strand as, as we both talked about it. You know, I, I'm also a lover of Cowboy Bebop, but then I think I feel like that the syndicate from that is a holdover from you know as much as it draws from like Triad and Yakuza, it also I feel like draws from that same tradition of noir national organizations that aren't defined so much by like ideology or um, identity or anything like that, but are purely corporate entities that have decided to enter into crime, and so that to me is 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 worth. It alone, but then also just like the, the 
the writing is a lot of fun. The, the actors are doing a great job. And if you just like look past the, the procedural elements, it, it is just a, a cracking good time. Oh, love it. All right. Well, I think we each have some uh, to catch up with from each other's lists. And, uh, and for anyone listening, there are no shortage of options if you Chicago and able to make it out to the Music Box Theater for Noir City. Yes, and hopefully we'll be back again next year to, to do this again and give you a little preview. Um, but also, you know, even if you're not looking for a noir film, just go out and go support the Music Box. It's a great place, and, uh, and we love it if you're in Chicago. Or if you're not in Chicago, then go support your, your local art house that, that's helping keep cinema alive. Speaking of which, what else were you watching this week? Well, it's time, as, as always, for What's in the Box. Fred, in honor of Kiss Me Deadly, uh, what's something you watched recently besides the you know 15 noirs you took in uh, that's so good it deserves to be glowing in that suitcase? Uh, I'm catching up a lot of 2022 titles that I missed the first time around, and there are two specifically that, that really knocked out of the park for me, and I think both of these have been previous What's in the Box entries for you. Definitely at least one has, I think. Maybe making that up. We'll but uh, I watched both Crimes of the Future and Nope, and both were great in very different ways. Crimes of the Future just hit me as this melancholy uh, eulogy before the funeral for uh, a director looking back and looking forward. It, it felt a lot like The Irishman in that regard, just not three and a half hours. I mean, I love The Irishman, but... Um, you know, that's just not Cronenberg style and that's great, but it, it is just a wonderful summation of a career. And Cronenberg has never been shy about having main characters who are essentially himself and using various horror and sci-fi and crime metaphors to explore the themes very clearly in his own life. But this one especially is just so reflective and so directly connected to himself as an artist and so if you love Cronenberg, for that reason alone, worth watching. But it's also just a fascinating view, vision of the future. And, yeah, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. It's, uh, I, I don't remember if I, if I, I called think you it did, out or not earlier. Because but I remember it, us it talking about good. whether we'd cover it at some point, And you were like, yes, it is noir. And now that I've watched it, I am also going to say that, yes, it's noir. <laughs> yeah, um, it, uh, it, it, was, it was really good. And it stuck with me, too. I, I think it's only improving as, it, as I ruminate more and more on it. Uh, but I would, uh, I don't know if it's quite like, like crash level uh, masterpiece for, for Cronenberg, but it's, I would certainly put it up there among some of his better entries from the, the 80s. Agreed. I'd definitely put it in my like, crash Videodrome this probably be i don't know it's definitely top five for me maybe maybe even higher i'm a big fan of the brood so that's oh uh, the brood doesn't do it for me i know i know so many people love the brood but for that one i just uh i don't know i mean i love oliver reed but that that actor that's playing the lead i was like hmm. a lot of those move like that and scanners both the, the leads i'm always like uh, that's fair but it's very so, canadian it is very canadian <laughs> uh and then also nope in a completely different way is just this big bold swing of a movie that doesn't always connect but when it does my god does it and there were some set pieces where i was like movies are great i'm glad i got to watch this in the theater and I just go in knowing as little as possible and enjoy finding out where it goes and what it's referencing and 
and the the trip is going to take you on because there's there's stuff that I'm still thinking about from that movie, and I, I'm sure I'll continue to be thinking about throughout the rest of the year. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious that this is not the subject for tonight, but uh, but to have a, a longer uh, nope debate with someone because I, I do want to kind of pick it apart more because it is a really fascinating film by someone who is um, just such feeling such a confident director, such yes. a, a, a cinematic magician. I I like his confidence. I like what he's going for. Uh, I can't wait to see whatever he does next. I mean, I think his is fascinating because I think his his stories have gotten like messier and less disciplined as they've gone along but his and not necessarily in a bad way but definitely you know get out was a very structured very tight script in a way that neither us nor nope is but his directing has just gotten so much more assured with each movie and his ability to just sort of craft audience reaction and emotion and Ridge across like multiple genres and scene is as really I mean it's reminds me of a lot of my favorite Korean directors who are able to kind of weave in horror and thriller and comedy into one movie that just is entertaining like that is the goal and that feels like that is Peel's goal as well. Yeah, it's a it's a rare talent that can can thread all of those needles that it takes a it takes a lot. Um, so, uh, totally agree. What about you? What have you watched? I uh, I feel like I watched a fair amount, but I but last night I put on uh, kind of on a whim a uh, a film I had not seen from Hao Shao Shen called Daughter of the Nile, and um, I'm a big Hao fan. I think uh, I think that Millennium Mambo is one of the best films of the aughts. Um, definitely love the assassin i've probably seen like i don't know maybe close to 10 of his movies and this was somehow i would say probably second only to millennium mumbo i it, it, i was not expecting to love it as much as i did but it is uh it's the story of a young woman who is trying to keep her family together um as as her brothers kind of turn toward crime and it's just this um, this ethereal piece that's kind of baked in the neon light of Taiwan, and it and it brings in all these elements from uh, from Western pop music to uh, she works in a in a multi story KFC, uh, but there's like the you know this this looming um, looming Western culture that kind of pulses in from the edges, mixed with um, mixed with a little framing of Egyptian mythology and rumination, and uh, and honestly, just one of those films that if you kind of fall onto its wavelength, it just carries you along, and it paints a really beautiful uh, picture of a of a family in a specific moment in time. And I absolutely loved it. Could not recommend it more. Uh, if you haven't watched any Hao Shao Shen. I don't even know where to start. Millennium Mambo is probably the best en- entry point for him, but um, but but this one was wonderful. Yeah, I have, unfortunately have to admit that I have not seen a single one of his movies. I remember The Assassin coming out and you singing its praises, right? That was like either yeah, right was after probably. or right before we met each other. 
Uh, it was right after was 2015, like, like yeah. 2015, yeah. So, uh, and but I think all of his major titles have, have been in my watch list for years. I've just never gotten around to to taking the plunge yet. Uh, so it'll happen. I'll some I'll sometime I'll I'll just take uh, like a week or two and just catch up on all the the pleasures he, to be found. He's one. I I think it, you know different directors are going to connect with people at different times in their life. But there was a, a period, probably. Uh, it must have been like right after I graduated college where, and I, I just so distinctly remember that I, uh, I, I immersed myself really thoroughly in two directors and one was Mike Lee and one was, was Hao Shao Shen. And I, and it's just that, that feeling when you watch movie after movie after movie from the same director and you kind of like feel like you get to know them in a deeper level, uh, at when that's all you're watching for two weeks straight, uh, and and I don't know. I've I've always loved how. I don't know how I miss this one. Nice. Well, you know, it's another one on the watch list for me to eventually tackle. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up. We managed to get this in under an hour and a half, so I'm pretty proud right. of us. Not uh, too shabby. Thanks, as always, for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. We'll continue to pop in with some one-off episodes as we prepare the back half of the detective series. We've already got one that we're trying to figure out the pairing for, and maybe we'll come back with one or two others, depending on how long it takes us to get that part two for the detectives, but you'll see us soon enough. And until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend.